Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy if you would. It's so good to see you guys. Our message this week through Deuteronomy chapter 12, we're looking at chapter 12 of Deuteronomy to chapter 16, verse 7, or 17. I, ho- I pray that you had a chance to read it. If not, try to do so a little bit later this week, as well as we just continue through. Witness through worship. Witness through worship is the topic, the title of today's message. And as you're turning there, I want to share that there's much discussion and question and even misunderstanding today about the church. Discussions about whether or not the church is essential. Should we be meeting? Question about what constitutes a church and its purposes. What, what is it designed to do? What is it for? And misunderstandings about what the purpose of the church is and who is the head of the church and who is able to share or tell what the church does and can do. Now, many of these discussions and questions and misunderstandings are not new, but they find themselves at the forefront with the appearance of this pandemic and the actions by the state and the reactions of those that attend church. There are many churches like other businesses that are facing dire times as the attendance and giving has dwindled. We ourselves have have uh, become, you know, uh, you know, obviously we see that that's happening here as well. And it's causing some to consider closing the doors, which we are not. Some have migrated all of their programs and their meetings to online, to live streaming. Others to some type of hybrid of online and personal meetings, inside or outside. Many are defying state guidelines by meeting together, while some are facing heavy fines and court fights to remain open. And let me share with you that churches are divided on this issue. Not just between the state and the church itself, and not just between the church and the populace at large who see the church meeting together as as a super spreader event, but between pastors of different churches and denominations between those that are in the pews to those who are ready to come back and to those who say we're never coming back until X, Y, and Z is met. And we, we understand all of those. But what we need to recognize is that the churches are divided over this issue. What is the proper biblical response should be? Which should be? While others are united in imposing any and all state regulations, there are others that want to find a different or maybe better route in their mind. Well, we ourselves here at OBBC, we're not immune to any of these discussions, questions and misunderstandings. The elders, the deacons, leaders, uh, and us uh, together, we've, we've been discussing and, and, and con- considering these issues the whole time. But to find the answers and the guidance that we need is important that we go to Scripture. It's important for you and I that when we consider what the church is and what its, what its purpose is and, and, and what we're here for, it's important for us to go to Scripture. For God has ordained that believers or that believers will give witness of God's greatness and His character through our worship. So how we meet together and why we meet and what we do 
it, while we meet is very important for it itself is a witness to the unbelievers as we worship. Now, last week, Moses emphasized the importance of keeping the law in order to find favor with God and receive his blessings. Moses calls the children of Israel to listen and live as the law reveals the character of Yahweh for the children of Israel are called to worship God and God alone. This week, Moses builds on the exclusiveness of worshiping Yahweh in today's passage by stipulating the who, the where, the when, and how of worship. The children of Israel, through worship, would witness to the rest of the nations around them the wonder and the might of Yahweh, the creator of all things. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, we're going to look at the first seven verses there. It's here on the monitor. Begin if you have your Bible, you can follow along. Moses writes, these are the statues and rules that you shall carefully do in the land that the Lord, the God of your father, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. In verse 5, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his inhabitate or make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your, and the contributions that you present, your vows, your offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Father, I pray as we come to your word, again, we're opening up an old book, talking about times far removed from us with practices that we don't truly fully under, uh, comprehend, with a people that are, are far long gone. But Lord, in it, it is your truth. It is good for, uh, for, for correction, for teaching. It is the, for, for telling us how to live our lives. So open up our minds and hearts as we consider worshiping witnessing through worshiping as we consider the children of Israel, your words to them, Lord, that we may be encouraged, Father, that we may be informed, and Father, that we may rejoice with the saints before. We thank you in this, in your, in this time. Amen. Now, the next 15 chapters of Deuteronomy that we're going 15 through about 29 or so consist of specific stipulations for life in the promised land. In other words, uh, Moses is telling them, listen, now when you get into the promised land, here is how you are to live. So the next 15 chapters are just stipulations. Many of them we've already seen in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but he's reviewing them again for a new generation that have grown up in just the desert. They really didn't know Egypt. They're ready to enter the promised land, and he's giving them some stipulations. However, as we look in these next passages uh, for us this week, Moses is giving them instruction on worship. How are you to approach God? Remember, this comes back really to Leviticus. What we see is we have a holy God who has created us that we may look upon him as the object of our admiration and that all the world should turn to him, the great creator of all things, and worship him, give him honor. For he is worthy. He is worthy to receive all the praise and adulations. 
and all the things that we give to focus on Him. And it's a holy God who says, this is how you can approach me. In other words, God has stipulations on how we are to worship. It's not the state. It's not a church council. It's not any other type of thing that comes and says, well, this is how you will worship. No, we go to Scripture where we find God's Word and tells us how we are to worship. Yahweh is the one who declares who the object of their worshiping. We saw that last week. It is Yahweh and Yahweh alone that we are to worship, along with the where and the when and the how. P.T. Vode, no relation, I believe, to the votes that are here. He writes this. It's, on, you, it's on, your bull, on the monitor just so you can follow along. He writes that the instructions in Deuteronomy demonstrate Yahweh's grace to the generation that's gathered on the plains of Moab, the instructions of how to live, help them know what is expected of this unique people of God as they enter into the land. As with the earlier generation, Yahweh doesn't leave the people to figure out for themselves how they are to live. Rather, He graciously tells them through Moses. So in the same way, God is showing His grace by saying, this is how you can approach me. And by approaching me in this way, you will find yourself pleasing me and you will find yourself accepted by me. We're reminded very quickly of just the difference between Cain and Abel in their worship. We're not told exactly why God honored Abel's and not Cain's sacrifice and worship, but we know that Cain was, not, was found not worthy, whereas Abel's was. This put up ire in Cain and you know, led him to, to kill his brother. Why? Because there was sin crouching at his door, it tells us there, and I believe in Genesis 6-2 or 6-3, one of those right around, or actually in 5, chapter 5. So you and I, it's important for us to know, how do we approach a holy God? One who's holy, holy, holy. One who is loving and good, compassionate. One who, who cares for His creation, but yet says that you must not uh, come with sin. So how do we do that? It's important for us to understand. Well, Yahweh instructs Moses to once again to reiterate the importance of how they were to approach Him in holy worship. Moses writes that they are to be careful to do all that Yahweh has prescribed, to follow his expectations and understand the duties that are required of them as they enter into the promised land. So easily do we forget. The first act was to prepare the land of worship. And you see that as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, 1 through 7. First, they had to prepare the land. And how were they to prepare the land? It involved destroying all the places that were used by the nations to worship their false pagan gods. He uses words and phrases like uh, destroy, to tear down, to dash in pieces and to chop down to convey how serious Yahweh's judgment would be against these former inhabitants and these demonic gods that they worshipped. They were to leave nothing left behind, nothing that would point to these false gods. In verse 4 of chapter 12, Moses exclaims, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So let me give you just a pastoral editor note. It's the way that you and I worship God is not the way in which the world worships its gods. One of the things that's striking to us that as Moses is up on Mount Sinai, remember in Exodus, and as God has given them the Ten Commandments, the people began to worry about where is Moses? 
And so they, they tell Moses or they tell Aaron, well, well, make us a God that we can worship, that we can focus on. And so he says, give me your rings, your jewelry, your silver, gold, so and forth. And he throws them into a, a cauldron and he burns them down and he shapes them into a, a golden calf. Now, uh, what is it? Uh, Aaron would later say, well, all this just happened to come out. This, this wasn't of my intent. But what's striking about that is not so much that they made a golden calf, okay? Uh, that, that's what people do. We make, we make gods of our own image. Remember John Calvin? Our idols, our, our, our hearts are our idol-making factories. We continually make idols. We all have golden calves in our life. Most likely you have more than one golden calf. That which you focus on, that which you worship, that which you give your money to, your time. How do you know what your golden calves are? Well, look at how you spend your time. Look how you spend your money. What is it that you daydream about? What is it that you focus on in life? It could be, it could be uh, fame. It could be influence. It could be a career. It could be, uh, you know, a, 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 some object of, of possession. It could be your family, your wife, pleasure experiments. These are all things that are our golden calves. But what's so amazing is they took that golden calf, and this is what surprised me as we went through it several years ago, is what did they say about that golden calf? Here is the God who brought us out of Egypt. See, they weren't worshiping a different God, but they were ascribing to God to that golden calf. And so we do the same thing. That's the problem with the wealth, health, and prosperity gospel, in which if you believe God that, that you'll get all your dreams are good, every day will be like Friday. Because it takes our dreams and our aspirations and we set them up and say, here is our God and we worship that. And that's what we expect from our God. Okay, that has nothing to do with the message. That's just a little tidbit there for you. But he says, you're not to worship like that. You destroy them, chop them down, destroy them. Let there be no vestiges of them around anymore. I don't want your children to walk around and saying, oh, what is this? No, burn it to the ground, destroy it. He wants it to make it very clear that they are to follow the instructions of the law and how they were to approach him in worship. They were not to adopt the ideas and the cultures of the pagans. Instead, he instructs them that Yahweh himself will choose out a special place for the people to gather and worship. In verse 5, he says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. Who will choose? The Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. In other words, don't go to the high hills and to the high mountains or to the low valleys or some beautiful stream and make your place of worship there. But God himself will choose a place for you to gather. Now, I want you to hear I'm saying this word gather. There's an important thing about worship. Worshiping is about gathering together, his chosen people coming together. In other words, we see this phrase, our faith is what? A private. Well, you know, or private and personal. Well, it is personal, but it's not private. Worship is to be an event in which we are witnessing to others, not only within ourselves, but to others. And we'll see that as we go on. Now, later in the Old Testament, we will read that the Lord will choose the town of Silo. We see that when we come to Samuel, and you'll see that, uh, uh, what's his name, Eli is there. It's at Shiloh that the tabernacle comes in the Ark of Covenant. 
Then King David will move the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem once he, he, uh, he invades that city and subjects it and makes it his city, where his son Solomon will finally build the temple where the Ark of the Covenant will, will be. It will be at this central place that the Israelites will travel to present their tithes and offerings and lift up the Lord of hosts through the public reading of Scripture and singing and observing the various feast days. So it's God who says, here's where you're going to go. But it's also God who says, you are to gather here. This is where it is acceptable to do so. But he also shares what they are to do and what not to do. Moses gives them several warnings concerning worship. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, look at verse 8. He says, you shall not do according to all that you, we are doing here today. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. In other words, don't follow your own impulses when it comes to worship. And this is the thing that we have today is many people say, well, well, let's do this. Let's do that. But I, I think it's best for you and I to worship as God has called us to. There are many practices and things that we do that may not be bad in and of themselves, but they can detract from the word of God. I remember there's a famous church in the Chicago area. I remember going to it. First time I've ever been to such a large church. And it was magnificent. Everything that they did was just high quality. But one of their focuses, because they had a great uh, theatric community around Chicago, they had a class professional uh, um, uh, actors and actresses who would come and they would act out a scene that would then lead into the message. And I, I thought this was the greatest thing in the world. And I, every church needs to adopt this. And, I, I, and, and they did it very, very well. However, it wasn't 20, 30 years down the line as that church finally looked back and said, we've been doing church wrong. We thought people had been catching what we're trying to teach them, but we truly haven't discipled them. You see, what they did is, is they became known for their drama and for their theatrics and for their stage show and their presence. But the reading of God's word and the, and the teaching of God's word had taken uh, the, the, the back seat. They did what was right in their own eyes. And, and it's very easy to do, but he says you must be careful to do those things that God has called us to. And in Judges, what do we see? If you ever want to understand judges, just go to the end. It says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. We understand the mind of the man. It says it's hostile to the things of God. Going in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, look at verse 32. He says, everything that command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. You and I must not ignore God's commands when it comes to worship and how we are to live. And let me say worship, when we think of worship, maybe I should have started off with this, is many times we think of just music and singing, but worship is, is 24-7. It's how we live. It's that reaching out to God. It's focusing on Him and how we live our lives. From the moment that you wake up to the moment you put your head down, you are worshiping God in some form or fashion. You're bringing attention to Him. You're giving thanks to Him. So we're not to follow our own impulses or to ignore God's commands. Like today, many people choose to reject God's prescribed order of worship and they begin to worship as they see fit, tickling their own ears, putting things that are, are proper. I know when, when the first time we put scripture reading into our, 
our service and, 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 and we're going to end with a pastor's prayer. It's like, that seems so foreign to us. Why do we do that? But those are things that God has called us as a church to put in our worship. But also in chapter 13, look at verse 2. He says, do not be led astray to follow after other gods. He says, you need to be careful of prophets and dreams, of family members and worthless fellows. He says that can entice whole cities to say, let us go and serve other gods. Now we have that today. We have people and churches or denominations and groups of people who would put themselves and say we are Christian, but yet really they have said, let us go and follow after other gods. Whether it's Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and other types. They're serving a different God. Typically what they're serving is self. They may have the name of Christian. They may undergo some of the very things that, that make one Christian or one thinks are Christian, but yet they're following after other gods. So he says here about prophets and their dreams and family members who might lead you astray and worthless fellows, that's the scriptural term. Moses commands that any of those that might come and say, let us go and serve other gods. He says you were to put them to death. These, these are tragic things that we need to look at. And many people, many churches have been led astray and are not following God's prescription of worship. They're following after things which are truly not God. However, he then gives them some positive commands. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, he says, You shall walk after the Lord your God, and you shall fear Him, and keep His commandments, and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. The Bible tells us that in our worship, it's holding fast to Him. When the rest of the world is swirling away, when you're in that whirlpool, we're, we're holding on to that anchor that is God. We're holding fast. When others are, are, are tempted to, to reach for something else, for safety or for comfort, we're holding on to Christ. Again, this is some things that we just have not done. We go to other things so quickly. Are you holding on fast? To Christ. In chapter 14, verse 2, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you, speaking of Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You and I are to live in holiness. We are to live lives of holiness. Now, for the children of Israel, they had a whole scheme of things in Leviticus. We read through those uh, several years ago. Things which you and I are no longer have to live, but he still calls them to live in holiness. To approach a holy God, we need to live as he has called us to. We are to worship as he has called us to. And here's the key. Why were they to do these things? Some of these things were very burdensome, very different. It was different from the culture. The people would look at them and say, what a strange way to live. You're not allowed to eat uh, pork. You're not allowed to eat this type of fish or this type of bird. You have to do this when you have mold in your house. You can only wear this type of clothing. These things would be strange to the people that they would live in. It would lead them to ridicule. It would lead many to, to hate them. 
But here's the thing. Is their worship is going to set them apart from the inhabitants of the land as well as the other nations. Now you can understand where we're going here. In the same way, our worship, the way that we live our lives and the way that we serve our king should set us apart. But unfortunately, just like Israel, we live for the approval and the acceptance of others. We want them to approve of us. We want them to love us. But what this world shows is they truly will never accept the things of God. They may accept some things or their vision of God and their version of Jesus that they would like to serve. But in the end, the Jesus that they say that they love is the Jesus they crucified. And they would do so today. Moses goes on to instruct them not to worship or to mourn or to eat as the world does. Their worship will serve as a witness to the sovereignty and the providence and of the very character of Yahweh. Their worship of Yahweh even extended into their economic structure of their society. Now we're skipping through quite a few chapters there of 12 to 16. But their worship of God would affect the way in which they were to give and to tithe. It would affect their sabbatical, how they would treat their servants and treat each other. In which they would have a justice that would point to God. And there was a warning about injustice. All of that is war in our worship. Hence why we see the problem today in this world. The problem that this world has today is a lack of worship. People say, why is it that we have to spend money to send missionaries throughout all the world? Mission exists because worship does not. Why does the church exist? Because worship does not. Why did Jesus came to change our heart? Because worship does not exist in us. We were worship something other than God, but that's God's redemption plan is to bring us back into worship of the Almighty God. They were to view every part of their life as worship. Let me ask you, do you view your life as that? Or are you like many of us? Have you compartmentalized your life? You know, well, here's my work life. You know, here's my married life or my dating life, my parental life. Here's my, my, my bowling league or my softball league or... The things that I do in my own time when I'm by myself. Let me ask, which part of that is outside of God's purview? Is there any part of your life that God says you do not have to worship me in that portion of life? None. Every point of God's, of, of our life is God's gift to us. That we may turn around and use all of that to worship Him, even in our giving, even in the way that we mourn, even in the way that we enjoy and entertain ourselves. It's meant to worship and point to God. This serves to keep our focus on Yahweh as they remembered His goodness and His wonderful promises. In the same way, our life is to be such that we're always focusing on Him. Let me ask you, and I'm guilty of this, how many times do you get up you start going through the morning, you go through your day, it's busy. And before you know it, you've gone through and you say, you know what, I haven't even prayed once. I have never considered scripture. 
and I just really haven't thought about God and his goodness. You know, I do that, and I'm one who, that's what I do during the day, where I just come, and I'm just involved in whatever is going on here. Before you know it, I, I haven't even done my devotions. I haven't really spent time in praying. We all go through the motions of life, hurried, busy, wondering and concerned about so many things. But yet now there are so many things today that just keep our minds occupied. I won't get the quote right, but there's someone who said that the Satan's greatest work is just keeping us busy. You know, we, we, there's that old phrase, idleness is the, is the devil's handiwork or something of that. But today he doesn't need to do that. Think about how much idle time do you have? Any idle moments you have, you've got your phone ready to keep yourself busy or a tablet, computer, some type of thing. When do you ever have time to just meditate, to think on the things of God, to dwell on God's goodness? And then what is it that we fill our minds with? We fill our minds and our hearts with the, the influence of others. Oh, I wish my life was like them. I wish I could travel the country like this Instagrammer. I wish I had this many followers. And so we attain for ourselves the things that just make us feel worse. Again, we made ourselves the object of our worship. Even today, we need to be reminded that God still prescribes the who, the when, the where, the how, and what we are to worship. The same warnings given to Israel, the same, uh, God, the same instructions are given to us today. We too are quick to follow our own, our own impulses. We too neglect the commands of God and we are prone to be led away by false doctrines. The unfortunate thing is many times we don't even understand that which is false. We don't understand the false gospels that are out there. And we've done much through this last few years to, to indoctrinate ourselves with, that's a bad word, especially when we're talking about false gospels, but to help us understand what is the true gospel so we can recognize the false gospels that are in the churches today. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's here on the monitor, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but Having itching ears, they will what? Accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We're very much into that generation today. If I don't like what this pastor says, if I don't like how he takes scripture or makes it the forefront, I'll just go to another church. They have better programs anyway. They meet more. Or they don't even require me to become a member of the church or, or be part of the church. I could just sit there and do nothing. Maybe just live stream. Just be an online church. Our worship points to our faith in God's sovereignty, His providence, His goodness. Paul points out in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that it is through the church that the gospel we be made known. We talk about the story of the Bible where the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. The story of the redemption, right? But it's through the church that God has said, I will make my redemption plan known. Look at here in Ephesians 3.10. 
He says it's through the church that the gospel will be made known. He says it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly places. Now, we live in a day and age where the, the, the earthly rulers want to tell the church what they're to do. We have greater wisdom. We have greater information. We know how you should behave and how you should act and when you should meet and what you should do. However, Scripture tells us it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. We're to witness through our worship. We too are called to hold fast and live lives in holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, we read as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The problem is, is that in so many ways, the church today has forgotten its purpose. And like ancient Israel, had been led astray by the world around it. We do not want to be that type of church. We want to be a church that is following God's instructions as given to us in His word of how you and I are to worship not only as we gather together, but then as we are sent out into the world. Hameen Gogan tweets this. He writes, having spent the last half century filling the vacuum of ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology is the study of church. So he says, so spending the last half century filling the vacuum of how church works in evangelism with worldly principles of productivity, scalability, and profitability, we now find ourselves unable to articulate what the church is and why it gathers when it's such principles, principles cannot be achieved. Let me break that down. What he's saying here is he says, I have spent 50 years trying to fill the vacuum of church in which the church has now gone to practica, uh, pra, uh, what we would call practism, pragmatism, in which what we're trying to do is do Productivity. In other words, uh, the pastor no longer is the teacher, but he's more like a CEO of a business. And it's about scalability. How can we do the most programs and get them to the right audience at the right time? And the profitability. In other words, we kind of Disney-fied church. We've, we've, we've made it into a business. And it's all about how many programs, how many people we can reach and how many how we can reach the most of them. You see it today in the, the Mac, uh, what is it, the, the franchising of churches. There's all these Mac churches around now, these big ones that, and I, I'm not trying to be uh, um, uh, too critical, but in a sense where smaller churches like ours are being swallowed up by bigger churches who will look and say, listen, we can do what you're doing much better. So why don't you come and just become our Mac church? We'll fill the pulpit with a video from our superstar. A pastor, and we'll just give you a campus pastor, and we'll just keep you busy, but you're under us, and we'll make all the decisions. Smaller churches like ours, and God bless us, we're an endangered species, especially today. One study says that probably 20 to 30 percent of churches will not survive this pandemic. That's probably true. We don't know what God holds for us true of today, but I will say that one of the things that I'm thankful about being a small community church is that we're able to meet. Larger churches can't. And by the way, under 
California and Governor Newsom's uh, best laid plans so far, even if we get to the best level, that there is never any chance that a church will be ever meet more than 50% of its capacity. That, that's the best level. He's never, he, he hasn't had one where we're ever out of it. So the best is 50%. Well, we're, we're thankful. This is a, a, t- a good time to be a small church, I would say, in, in some respects. However, we are to witness through our worship. And so we must stand and say, listen, it's not about productivity. It's not about scalability. It's not about profitability. But it's finding out what is the principles that God has called us so the church can be the church. Is the church essential? What is its purpose? The church today has been infected with what is called moralistic therapeutic deism. I finally got it down. Many of you have heard this word through the American gospel. By the way, if you have not watched the American gospel, I encourage you to, to Google it. I think, it's on, um, I think it's on Amazon Prime. I think it's on YouTube. Others, that's just a great way of showing you how many churches have failed the gospel. This is a belief, moralistic, therapeutic deism, is a belief in which there is a high value on being good and feeling good about one yourself, about yourself. So again, what is it about? Yourself. Now here's, I'm going to give you the four, five core beliefs of what we call MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, there's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Now look at what, what there's a small g. We understand that there's a God. We may not identify all of them, but there, there's a God. There, there is a creator. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So we just want to play fair. What's that book? Uh, everything I learned, everything I need to learn in life, I learned in kindergarten. Just be nice. Don't take what's yours. Ask for please and thank you. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This is the church of Oprah, church of Joel Olstein, and many others. Just feel good about yourself. We're going to bring you in here and we're going to give you 20 minutes because I know you can't handle more than that of motivational speaking. I want to give you five or three how-tos so you can walk out and be a good employee, how to be a better parent, how to be a better something, and we're going to send you out and be good and fair to others. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Yeah. I'll call you when I need you. Why are you showing up and doing this in my life? Just leave me alone. You know, he's, he's like, break glass in emergency, you know, and then pray. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. No talk of hell, no talk of God's judgment, no talk of God's expectations. This is a false belief that results in a generation of churches and leaders that have sought and taught a pragmatic, seeker-sensitive, and seeker-friendly church. At first, it was seeker-friendly. In other words, we just want to be, we want to, we want to get those lost people in a church. And, and that's a good thought. Again, by the way, this is a pragmatic thought. 
We want our loved ones to come to church. We want our friends to come to church. We want our community to come. So we want to be seeker-friendly. And, and I think we should. We, we ought to love. And I think the church has been known as a loving, small community that loves all who comes in. But a seeker-friendly church says, but what I need to do is I need to make sure that I don't offend them by speaking about anything that might offend them. Sin, God, hell. And then it became, well, instead of seeker-friendly, let's be seeker-sensitive. In other words, let's be sensitive of the things that are going on in their life. So if they're living together, well, that's okay. If you're in sin, well, that's all right. You know, we, we don't want to say anything about that. We, we don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. So instead of stepping on any toes or, or taking the scripture and speaking into your lies, we, we make sure that we're just talking about the nice and good things of scripture. Tell you what, if that was the case, if we tried to do that, I would have a harder time coming up with messages, to be honest with you. We definitely wouldn't be going verse by verse and looking at book and the Bible this way. Now, does that mean that the church should be a turn and burn a story, a, a true story? There's a pastor friend that, when he first became the pastor of the church, they had a, an entrance kind of like our back. And it had a blank wall. And he wanted to paint something. And, and so one of his members says, well, I, you know, I do murals. Let me, murals. Did I say that correctly? A mural. Okay, you got it. A picture. All right. He says, let me do this. And he goes, okay, I'll let you do that. And so the guy painted it, and he finally said, oh, I got it done. The pastor said, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, the problem, though, is people were coming in mad and angry with the pastor. Now, the thing is, the pastor never came in that door. He always came in one of the side doors into his office, into the church. And he says, why is everyone angry? What's going on? And his wife said, you need to go look at it. So he finally goes around the corner and walks into the church, and there on that wall was this picture of like a heaven type like thing and then like a hell and people almost like a Michelangelo type middle age thing going on and in it in big words it has burn or no yeah or, or what's that word turn or burn turn or burn well we, we don't want to be those types of Christians that, that's not how God has called us to do we speak the truth in love we're kind but we want to share that God loves them but yet God's love though also brings his judgment as well. And so we need to be very, very careful of how we do that. We can't be so seeker-sensitive and so seeker-friendly. Is that when they come out, they leave feeling comforted. Let me tell you, if you're standing under the word of God and you leave comforted and thinking that you are okay, then I don't know, either I haven't done my job or you haven't been listening or the Holy Spirit is vacant in your life. There ought to be a sense in which we're looking and saying, Lord, strike my heart. That's why we ended. Pause, consider, pray, respond. Is that it ought to stir within us a desire to appease and approach a holy God. However, that's not the type of church we want to be. In the New City Catechism, question 48 asks the, church, asks the question, what is the church? And I believe we have it up here. And I want you to look at it and look at the words. Look at this clearly with me. It says, the church is, here's the church. God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, and learn from and worship how? Together. God sends out this community 
and proclaims the gospel and prefigured Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together. That should be together, not tighter. And their love for one another. What is the key words you're seeing? Is that just as Israel was called to come together to worship as an elected chosen people of God, we too are called to come together to worship, to serve, and to love her, the key, or love together, not to love her. But one of the key terms is the word together. We are called to meet together. It is together that we worship God. Just as Israel was the chosen people called to meet together, we are the chosen people called to meet together to worship. This here is our Shiloh. This here is our Jerusalem. This is our tabernacle, the temple, so to speak where we are, God is together. And I'm so thankful that you, so many of you have called this home as calling membership or you're coming as a regular attender or visiting. Thank you. We want to share with you, this is a church that believes that we are to do life together. There is no such thing as a virtual church or an online church. I know many of you are watching us on Facebook and YouTube during this time, and we thank you so much. But We want to encourage you. Now is the time to come back. And we want to encourage you, come back and be together with us. We want to extend grace as long as as possible to make sure that you feel comfortable in coming. But we encourage you, it's time to come back and to serve and be the church together. Scripture calls us to do several things together. It calls us to read scripture together. He says to give public attention to, or gives attention to the public reading. He tells us to pray together. He calls us to sing together. He calls us to give together. He calls us to build each other up. And then lastly, we are to serve each other in love. We cannot do that virtually or online. We cannot do that if we're not meeting together. Our coming together needs to be intentional. We need to make the plan. And again, as I want to encourage you as parents and, and husband and wives, encourage one another to come. When we do not make church an intentional choice, we are teaching others and our children and others that worship does not matter, that the meeting to, together of God's people is not as important as a day at the beach or the day at Disneyland or some other thing. We need to understand this is the coming of God. This is not something that we said, hey, you know what? What are you doing on Sunday? You want to just, yeah, I don't know, you want to just come here and hang out? No, it's an intentional gathering of God's people that we may witness to our worship, through our worship. It needs to be a, a priority. It must be something that we, we make a priority in our life. And it's something that we ought to do joyously, lifting up in song, praising God, for who he is. So as we come this morning, there's probably much more that I could say. There's probably more that I could say maybe better. So I encourage you, if there's some way in which what I've said has alarmed you or make you consider, please come and ask. Come to us as the elders. We'd love to pray with you, share with you how you could be a part of this church. Maybe it's even knowing what the redemption plan of God is. One of the things I want to just say on the side this world is a fearful world. It's a divided country that we live in. Many things are now competing for our allegiance. There's a new false gospel that is growing like wildfire uh, today throughout the world and through the churches today. 
whether it's so-called social justice, called critical race theory, whatever it may be, it's a false gospel that offers no redemption, no way to make oneself right before God, doesn't offer love, forgiveness, or kindness towards others. And you and I need to be aware of this. And it's so sad to see churches and my pastor friends falling to this very, very a false gospel. But let us as a church commit to worship, to focusing on God, to approaching Him as He has called us to do, not to neglect the gathering of His people. We are to reach up, to reach in, and to reach out. Reach up by worshiping God each and every day and focusing our life. To reach it in by living and discipling one another to become more like Christ. And then to reach out and sharing Christ with the world. They will see, uh, uh, they will see our witness through our worship. To God be the glory and for our good. May we continue to meet as a church for God has called us to meet as a church. Amen. There we had bowed and every eye closed. The worship team comes up and Randy, this moment I'm going to ask you to come up for our pastor's prayer. I'm just going to ask you to take a moment to pause and to consider the words and things that I've shared this morning. Some of them might have stepped on your toes. I hope they did. It was meant to do so in a good, positive way. We want to pray that the Holy Spirit will now come and work in your heart. Have you understood what the church is? Has it been something that's been intentional in your life? Has it been something that's been a priority? Have you come rejoicing or has it been a duty? I pray that you may see God's church as the most wonderful thing to belong to. It's the bride of Christ. He died for the church. We're gathered this morning to give thanks for him. Would you respond to the Holy Spirit's word? Randy, would you come and then share with us the pastor's prayer? Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to know that we are a treasured possession of yours is surely the most joyous and comforting fact that we can take hold of, for there is no other God besides you, you the creator and sustainer of all. You chose us before the foundation of the world to be this treasure. May we let that sink in deeply. We scarcely can understand the depth and breadth of your love. It is all-consuming. Thank you, our Lord and Savior, for giving us the knowledge that despite our sin and rebellion against your holiness, you pull us relentlessly to you. You have looked upon our helpless state, each one of us, and you have poured out your love to us in unending measure. Now enable us to give our hearts to you, give our worship to you, give our thoughts and minds and all of our desires to you, in gratitude for your great love for us and your wonderful promises of everlasting life. We know we have your forgiveness, and now we pray for your continued mercy. Please guide us through the coming days and weeks full of un unseen, unforeseen circumstances, none of which is outside of your providence. Let us fixate upon your goodness and glory as you secure in our minds your word preached here this morning. Father, we ask for you to receive our prayer. In the name of Jesus, your only begotten. Amen.
We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.